With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Generations is pleased to present the Freedom 2015 audio series. These messages were recorded at the Freedom 2015 National Religious Liberties Conference in Des Moines, Iowa on November 6th and 7th. For more vision and inspiring messages, visit generations.org. The following message is presented by Jeff Botkin and is entitled, The Decline of Freedom, From the Bill of Rights to the Ten Planks of Communism, Americans' Domestic Enemies and Where They Came From. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming to this last workshop of the day. And this, this uh, title of this talk uh, is talking about the demise of freedom. It's kind of a depressing title. Uh, but given what we've been discussing throughout the entire conference, this is only part of God's process. The demise of freedom is something that happens before something else happens, which is the restoration of God's people. And I'd like to read a verse. I actually read this verse earlier this morning because it perfectly described what Bill Potter was talking about, but it also perfectly describes this lecture as well. So I'm going to read from Nehemiah 9. And chapter 9 is God recounting to his people all the blessings that he has given to them and the way that he has preserved them throughout history. And in Verse 26, he says, Nevertheless, Nehemiah is talking about the people, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. 
And we see this happen throughout Scripture. We see the people of God being blessed, straying, rebelling, being chastised, repenting, and then the blessing of God coming on them again over and over and over. Uh, the book of Kings and Chronicles describes this happening from family to family, up and down. And it's something that we see in Scripture as well. So today, uh, my father, Jeff Motkin, is going to talk to you about some of the enemies that we have and some of the situations that, that we find ourselves in today, but also the response that we should have. Now, it's important to note in that chapter in Nehemiah, when the people of God cried out to him, he sent them relief. He sent them saviors. Now, we, I believe it is our temptation to think to ourselves, oh, things are bad, but I already see a savior coming. I think it's Ted Cruz, or I think it's Mitt Romney. I think we don't need to cry out. Someone has already cried out, and someone has already showed up to save us. We're fine. But when we actually cry out to the Lord because we recognize who he is and what he demands, that is when redemption comes. That is when he takes care of his people. So I'd like you all to uh, join me in welcoming my dad to the stage to talk about this issue and to describe for us um, who some of our enemies are and why they pale in comparison to the God that we serve. So please welcome Jeffrey Bodkin. Thank you, Isaac. Well, thank you, Isaac. And, uh, you know, for, for these very reasons that Isaac has mentioned, the record that we have in Scripture, we don't need to be fearful, even when everything seems to be falling down all around us. And, and I'm not. Now, Isaac knows his father, and he knows that what, what you're about to hear is going to be an extraordinarily pessimistic message, okay? Um, because I need to talk about this, the demise of freedom. I need to talk to you in adult terms today about the enemies that are facing our country. And I'm going to tell you the three top most dangerous enemies that are, that are a threat. Uh, and it's scary. I mean, if we, if we could really see exactly how vulnerable we are, what the wrath of God was really like, some of you would be sneaking out before the end of the lecture to go get your families and saying, honey, uh, chart a course to either Canada or Mexico or wherever's closest, <laughs> because the wrath of God is hot on this country. But I'm encouraged. I'm not, you know, my car's not packed to go to, to Canada or Mexico right now. I just, I want to tell you that up front. People ask me, and you, when I'm finished here today, you can come ask me practical questions. I, I want to interact with you and answer, because your, your mind will be racing. You'll want to know, what, what, what do we do? What can we do? I'm going to give you the scriptural solution to this problem. We have enemies. They're bearing down on us. And they're terrifying. And as Isaac mentioned, the most terrifying of all would be the wrath of God. If we get in the way of the wrath of God, as other nations have, it is terrifying. But again, okay, we've been around the block. Some of the speakers who've been here have been in the trenches. They've seen how ugly it is. Mr. Shackelford, who just spoke upstairs, he knows what it's like to look the enemy straight in the face. He knows what dirty tricks look like. 
Um, Isaac worked with me in Washington, D.C. when he worked in politics, and we saw some very dangerous, deadly, ugly things happening. But we're not discouraged. We, we believe fully that there, there are answers that we can find in Scripture and that we can appeal to God and realize that. So I, I just want to tent- tell you that, okay? Remember that when you're tempted during the course of this message to be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. When you think that Mr. Botkin is one of the most pessimistic men on the earth, the people who know me know that I'm one of the most optimistic because I love Scripture and I love the promises of God. Yesterday, a presidential candidate came to speak to you all. Prior to his coming, he was asked by the media, why are you going to a place where they're known to have Bibles and to read those Bibles respectfully and talk about Scripture? And the implication was, don't you know, Mr. Candidate, uh, that's really going to give you an image problem. If you hang out with those people, you will have an image problem because of what's going on. I'm starting today by taking us to Scripture. I want you to look at this verse. This is a book, Ezekiel, that has been coming up in this conference with several speakers. Ezekiel 20, verse 19 says, I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And the verse that Isaac read earlier from Nehemiah gives us a point in history, in the history of the people who'd been given the word of God who were not following it. They were not walking in his statutes. They were not keeping the Lord's judgments. They were not doing them. And so as this book has been opened here this week, the book of Ezekiel, the context of the verses is a little bit, I mean, again, could discourage you if you were listening closely. Let me just um, open up some of my notes that I took and uh, just, just read Wow. Um, Last night, uh, Mr. Cruz um, opened up Ezekiel and was reading to us the command, hear my voice and warn my people. Because there are leaders in the country who have not been doing that. And he realized in his own life, he needs to be starting to do that. Dr. Joel McDermott took us to Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am against the shepherds. Now, people, a man asked me at lunch today, do you think God is, is uh, fighting against America? Yes, he is, and I'll show you why, and I'll show you where a little bit later in this message. If God is against the shepherds, and if God might be against the sheep at some point, we are in really big trouble, aren't we? Okay? Ezekiel is a very scary book, but it also holds out hope to us. And we're going to be looking at hope today. Let me just take you very quickly to this, this passage about the judgment of God and when it does get dicey. Jeremiah 18, verse 7. At one moment, and God Almighty is speaking here. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Okay, now this is, how many times have you heard lectures or sermons about the calamity that God may bring on his people? 
in modern times. And it's, a, it's a place that most people don't go. This is how God speaks, adult to adult, and we're going to be speaking about adult things here. A calamity on a nation is a, very, is a very uncomfortable place to be in, especially for women and children who suffer during times of calamity. Verse 9, or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. I love the way that the Lord uses this term, to plant, to plant. A he says to, to the Jews elsewhere in Jeremiah, I planted thee a noble vine. Why hast thou now turned to me, become to me a degenerate vine? And so I just want to draw your attention to the historic fact that God planted this country carefully and lovingly as a noble vine. And what have we become? We'll find out as we go on a little bit. But in verse 9 he says, I might speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, build up or plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. These are the Lord's written promises that he gives. And yes, they are in Scripture. And yes, we should not be ashamed or embarrassed to open up the Scriptures and look at these promises. Yes, even in the Old Testament. When I'm finished here, upstairs there will be a closing address by the organizer of this conference who's going to dare to take a Bible and open it up to the book of Leviticus. And the media will be there like vultures to hear the Word of God read from the book of Leviticus. Who's afraid of Leviticus? It's become a pejorative. And I've even heard Christians refer to the book of Leviticus. Oh, yeah, that's, that. that's the no-go territory. Yeah, right. Nobody goes there anymore. Well, what's wrong with the book of Leviticus? Has it been excluded? Has it been excised from Scripture? Can we not go there? Can we not go there to find hope in the, the will of the Lord, in the mind of the Lord? Before we go any farther, I want to stop and give you three real quick definitions. The law of God. You'll hear me use this phrase. What do I mean by that when I say the law of God? It is here. Now look at this last verse in Jeremiah 18, verse 10. If, if a nation does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, okay, by not obeying my voice, that I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. This is where the Lord makes his decisions and evaluates the spiritual condition of a country. If he's looking at the nation of, of Israel, and when Nehemiah bows in prayer to confess the sins of himself and his fathers and his grandfathers, this is what he looks at. This is what God looks at. This is what godly families look at. This is what leaders look at. He was the governor. He said, we've acted very corruptly to you. We have cast your law behind our backs. We stopped listening. And so... They stopped obeying the voice of God. And so when I use this phrase, the law of God, this is where we see and hear God's voice very clearly and specifically. He was so good to us to condescend, to give us the written law, to be specific. In our hearts, Romans 1, everyone, Jew and Gentile, knows what's right and wrong. And we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But isn't it wonderful that we have such specific instruction given to us about what right is and wrong is, what justice is. For every nation at every point in history, 
And so when I say the law of God, I mean everything that we're commanded to obey from Genesis to Revelation, with that small exception of the fulfilled ceremonial laws that foreshadow the Messiah. I'm talking when I say the law of God about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about all the case laws in the Pentateuch, which instruct us on how to apply those Ten Commandments in the home, in the church, in civil government, in the courts of justice, in business, in all aspects of public and private life. That's what I mean when I say the law of God. And yes, it's not just for the church. It is for the civil government. It is for business. It's for farmers. It's for agriculture, too. The law of God speaks to all of these things. Jesus Christ himself, these are the words of our Messiah, Matthew 5, 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, meaning, and when he uses the phrase the way that I do, all of the commandments of Scripture. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is what the Lord said about this. We can't go annulling the book of Leviticus just because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't annul it and teach others. We don't teach people that they no longer have to read the Old Testament. That's annulling it and so teaching others. And we become least in the kingdom of heaven. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus used this term, too, in association with the law of God. He called them my commandments. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the written law. He also used the phrase the law and the prophets when he's talking about the law of God. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets in Matthew 5, Matthew 22. He uses this phrase, Moses and the prophets meaning that written law that was given to us so lovingly and specifically by God Almighty to his servant Moses. And the prophets were those who came to remind, and that's what Nehemiah was reminding the Lord that, yes, Lord, we confess that you, we failed and stopped listening to you. And you sent prophets to remind us, and we killed them. I mean, he's he, being very specific about the sins that they committed against God, his messengers, and his law. Jesus Christ says in, in our great commission, all things whatsoever I have commanded, that represents the law that we're supposed to teach the nation. And we're supposed to teach them how to obey those laws, to observe those laws. David, who had a heart after God's own heart, when he refers to the law of God himself in affectionate terms, he delights in the law of God. He uses these terms. He calls it the law. And Psalm 19 is a very good summary. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony is sure, making wise and simple. So he talks about the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandment, the judgments, all these things together. This is what makes up the law of God. The testimonies that the Lord gives us about his ways, his mind, the, the specific statutes, the commandments where we're, we're warned, do this and you'll live. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best in the land. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. It's, just, it's real simple. The commandment and the judgments and the record we have in Scripture that tells us what happens when a people or a nation obeys and what happens when they don't. We have those judgments given to us. The promises are in writing. Are Christians taking them? Are they listening? Are they reading? Or are they annulling the law of God? 
Next phrase we must identify and define today, freedom. Freedom is the liberty to obey and apply and enjoy the wisdom of God's law. It's a yoke that's not sorrowful. It's not a burden to us. It's not heavy. It's a yoke we should be so willing to take on us. Freedom is the God-given right to serve the one who defines freedom. We get to serve him. We get to be intimate with the God who loves us. The God who wants the best for us. and He's the creator. He created the universe that he's given us to live in. He's created us and our hearts and our minds and our souls. And he knows what's best for us and what to do with our lives and how to live. And this, he wants us to serve him in freedom. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as bond slaves of God. Why are we commanded? This is New Testament. Why are we commanded this? Because we will be tempted to use the freedom that we can find in this world as covering for evil. God says, use it as bond slaves of God. So freedom is therefore a gift of God to be used according to God's design, not our own design. Freedom is not a license to get away from God or to commit treason against sovereign authority. Okay, that's... Got a little granddaughter who wants her freedom. Okay? To do what she wants to do. I was correcting... She was... um, uh, Earlier this summer, she was two years old, I was correcting her about something little, something little, and she started to cry. (laughs) And I picked her up and held her in my arms, and I said, why, why are you crying? And she said, I don't want to be good. (laughs) And I, okay, she wanted her freedom to do what she wanted to do. And so I said, okay, Catherine, and by the way, I asked her if I could tell this story, and she said yes, okay. (laughs) Catherine, what is it that you want? She's the most honest counselee I've ever had in my life. She said, I want to be the daddy all the time. She wants to get to decide what's right and wrong, good and evil, and make the decisions herself and be the authority at all times, and therein find her freedom so she can justify everything that she does. And she knew exactly what she wanted. She was morally honest. She admitted it. Now, praise God, you know, that we have answers to the sin of the, the human heart. Freedom is not the license to get away from God. Freedom is not finding one weird trick on the internet that helps us learn to be licentious. It's not finding one cool creative church that lets us live a life of lawlessness and do what we want. But that's why there is so much church hopping, isn't it? I want to find that youth group or that pastor or the, the culture in a church that justifies me in doing what it is I want to do. Freedom is not chasing the enticements of libertinism from the original rebel, the original radical. And we heard from the Benham brothers today. Um, They were shocked to read about Saul Alinsky and his dedication in front of his book, Rules for Radicals, to the first first radical Satan, dedicated to him, because absolutely he is the first radical. The first earthly rebel who was tempted by him was who? Was Eve. And he tried to give her a different definition of freedom. Economic analysts are predicting that one of the best-selling toys of this Christmas season will be 
this little singing doll here that comes with a microphone who sings an anthem about freedom, different, different definition of freedom. Can you see that up there? Okay. She sings, and you can sing with her, and she can sing with you on the microphone, the top-selling Disney song about freedom and personal identity that says a lot about America's truest affections, sin and lawlessness. Um, these, these are the, just some of the words from one of the, one of the stanzas. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Okay, do you see that? Okay. Why is this so popular? I mean, why do you come up to a stop sign at this, a red light and they're singing it in the car next to you? Okay. Now, who's doing it in America? Certainly no Christian families, right? Certainly none of our sons or daughters. Certainly, certainly no parents in our churches, right? Or have we given so in to this spirit of licentiousness that we love this in our hearts? I mean, this is one of the most popular songs being bought and subsidized by Americans and also all over the world. It's big. Why? Because of the appeal. I mean, this is straight out of where? Genesis chapter 3. Satan giving, you know, the, the number one seductive message to Eve that all of us really want to hear and give in to. Come on, come on. Has the old man said, you'll die if you eat that? Oh, come on. He just wants to keep you from being free. It's time for you, it's time for you to see what you can do. Look, a little fence around that tree. <clears throat> Break through. <clears throat> Take it. <clears throat> He knows if you take it, you'll have the freedom and the power and the insight to be able to make your own decisions about right and wrong, good and evil. So Eve, it's time for you to see what you can do. Break, test the limits and break through. No, you know, his right and wrong, you need to set your own right and wrong and be free. That is not biblical freedom. Do you see that? I, that's why I, I need to define that. And now defining this word chastisement. How many preachers will tell you that you need to chasten your children as the authority who represents God in your family? How many churches still teach that we need to be doing that in our homes to be faithful to the law of God? Very few. How many tell you that God, our Heavenly Father, will chasten us according to His promises in Scripture and even chasten our nation? In Scripture it says a phrase that's used well over a dozen times. I will set my face against you, God says. God can be fighting against us. Is God fighting against us? Let's, let's look deeper into our study. Psalm 94 verse 10 says, He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. Answer is yes, he will rebuke. He will chasten. He's the God. That's part of his title. As God Almighty, he's the God who chastens nations. He's the lawgiver. He's the king. He's the judge. Verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are a mere breath. And the songs that we sing in the shower, a mere breath. The affections that we have. This is why we must conform them to the law of God to have wisdom. Verse 12, blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Okay, this is out of your law again, where we hear the voice of God, where we see it, we see his will for us. 
Scripture says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, Hebrews 12. And he scourges every son he receives. This is how the Lord shows us that he loves us. And our nation, that he will give us his attention to correct us if we need it. Now, when your son or daughter has the, effect, the affections for Satan's rebellion anthem, do you know how to correct her? Or your son, your teenage son? Do you know how to correct them from the Word of God? Proverbs 28, verse 9 says, He who turns his ear away from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And this is one of my biggest concerns for what's going on in our nation today. If we have come up with one weird trick so that we can have our, our license and our liberty and the freedom that we think we need to correct just by plugging our ears so that we don't hear the Word of God, or finding a church that will never teach it? What's our relationship like with God Almighty? Even our prayer would make Him angry. And what if a whole nation is doing that? Do you see what Scripture says here? Even His prayer is an abomination. There's to be a, a number of, of prayer meetings held this coming year, 2016, on the steps of every state capital of America organized by a Christian leader who's concerned about our country. I'm concerned too. But I'm also concerned that if the Christians of a lawless nation with a lawless attitude who don't like God's law gather together and whine to him, will it just make him angry? There were people who don't care about his law or what he expects of a country. And so when judgment falls, and it always does because God's intimate with a country, either blessing or cursing, and God promises both for those who do listen and obey. There's blessing after blessing after blessing, and America has proven God faithful to his word in blessing. When judgment falls, God always follows due process. He's never arbitrary. He doesn't throw lightning bolts down from the sky. He doesn't say, off with his head, because I don't like him. He always follows due process. When we violate what's written, he always follows due process. And what God does in his procedure with nations is to indict and arraign his people on a charge of treason. And that's what I want you to understand. When I am a creature made in the image of God and I decide I want to go my own way, I want to test the limits and break through, I want to be my own, I want to find myself. I want to shake my fist at God and go my own way. That's treason to him. It's attacking him in his person. It's like slapping him or spitting right directly in his face. I, and you need to understand that. And when a whole nation does it, he arraigns his, his people or a nation on a charge of treason. This is how God works, and he does it with every nation. And as my son mentioned earlier, this is the record of Scripture that we can see in the families of the kings. And by the way, it's a really interesting study for you all to do with your families. Take a look at the most wicked kings and then look at the king's mother or the king's wife and the influence that she had on that wicked king. Take a look at the good kings and look at the mother or the wife. Have you ever done that study? It's fascinating to see. The wicked, selfish mothers produce kings that lead their people 
in a very wicked, selfish direction. God's will for all the nations is the freedom. God wants this for nations. The freedom to fear God and to serve God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. New Testament command given to us by the Holy Spirit through Paul to Timothy. First of all then, this is the will of God for nations. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and, and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is the will of God. This is what he wants for our national, social, culture and life. A tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And by the way, persecution does not advance the progress of the gospel in ways that many people boast about. It sets it back. This is where the gospel flourishes upwardly in history. At times when God is blessing nations and there's tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity in those nations. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The truth about everything. The truth about everything they need to know. The truth about what they need to do with Walt Disney Media. The truth about what they need to do with the public education system. About religious freedom. About how to respond to God. What to do with apostate churches. The Lord wants us to know what to do in these moral tests and situations. Have you ever noticed how tyrants make war against the truth to keep people ignorant of all these true things? Tyranny, when a tyrant comes into power. Tyranny is, is the replacement of freedom with institutionalized ignorance and justice. They will do things to keep the people ignorant. Slaves are always educated by their governments in history. Did you hear that? Slaves have public education systems for their people. Proverbs 29, verse 2 says, When the righteous increase, people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, people groan. And that groaning, that is a very, very painful thing. We read this verse and we, we, we acknowledge it. But when wicked men rule, people suffer. The weak suffer first, but everyone suffers. A description of this condition, Habakkuk 1, verse 4, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. Why is the law ignored? People are plugging their ears against it. They don't want to hear the law of God. For the wicked surround the righteous and therefore justice comes out perverted. Why is justice so perverted in this country? Because we can see it here. The law is ignored. Justice is never, real justice, meaning God's justice, is not upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. How many of you feel surrounded? You should feel surrounded because you are with the wicked. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. God hates this. For his justice to even be called justice when it's perverted. When the courts set up and they have a bench and they have a place where the judge will sit in judgment and even a, ju a, a jury box over here and a box for testimony to be given truthfully and justice is perverted. What does God think about this? We're playing life. We're playing justice and we're perverting it. Psalm 12, verse 8, the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. They strut. They don't just walk around. They strut around. Psalm 125, verse 3, for the scepter of wickedness, meaning the governors and magistrates, 
ruling from a position of injustice and wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Because when that happens and we're overwhelmed by injustice and the courts of justice and the halls of the legislatures are full of mischief and wrong and injustice, the righteous do put forth their hands to do evil. And they become accomplices in sin. Now, very quickly, before I give you, I'm going to tell you who the three enemies are in just a minute. But I want to give you five theological laws of judgment. These are very simple. Base. This is not advanced theology. This is very basic. Americans used to know this very clearly about God's ways, His justice, and His will. And it's really not good for us to be ignorant about this topic of judgment. Jeremiah 8.7 says, Yea, the stork in the heaven knows her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Did you hear that? This is, it's not good when we don't know how the Lord relates to us or to a nation. Jeremiah 5 verse 3 says, Lord, thou hast stricken them. This is chastisement. Lord, thou hast stricken them but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, surely these are a poor. They are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. It's really horrible when a nation is being corrected by the Lord, and they don't even know it's Him that's correcting them. And when we get to a place like that, a nation is really in big trouble. Is America at that point? Let's keep reading and see. First principle of judgment. God does actively govern in the affairs of nations by judging them and rewarding them with justice. Blessings or cursings. He's very active. Even Ben Franklin, that old reprobate, knew this principle. And he knew that God was governing accurately in the affairs of the founding of this country. But he wouldn't trust God or believe God. But he did understand the integrity of Scripture, and he read it. But he wouldn't believe it and submit to it because he loved his sin. Uh, his biography is very instructive on men who can live in a Christian culture and still, still never bow the knee to Christ because of pride. God does actively engage himself. He's not a far-off, distant, deistic kind of a God. He's very intimate in the affairs of every nation. Everyone who thinks little of his laws that he gives us will be in debt to them, Proverbs 13, 13. Those who do not acknowledge God's authority, Romans chapter 1, they become, and this is true individually and nationally, people who refuse to acknowledge God any longer become morally stupid, and it's hard for them to process these truths that we're looking at today. Literally, they become morally stupid in their ability to think as a judgment, as one of the judgments, Romans chapter 1. Second principle, God's judgment follows due process according to his laws and covenant. It's already laid out in scripture how he conducts his arraignments and indictments of men. He's always very clear about identifying sins that need to be judged. Nineveh, Tyre, and Sidon were judged for very specific sins. Gaza was judged for kidnapping. Babylon was judged for financial plunder. Sodom was judged for, do you know what? You know what the four primary sins were that they were listed in Scripture that Sodom was judged for? Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Let me just read this and think about this nation, 
state that was judged. Listen carefully. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, and she and her daughters had, here comes the list, arrogance, abundant food, careless ease. She did not help the poor and needy. Did you you get that? Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw fit. See, he needed to remove them from the earth. Lest they infect others with their sins of pride, the fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, indifference to the poor and needy. Did you know, have you talked to your children about this? These are the primary sins of Sodom. And it was completely wiped off the map. Pride. Fullness of bread. Could you sit down with your family and write down the top four sins of the United States of America? The way that God sees it from His Holy Scripture. Would you know that so that you can begin to get on your knees and ask the Lord to forgive us and begin leading a process of repentance? Fullness of bread. Abundance of idleness. Indifference to the poor and needy. The third principle, very quickly. God's judgment always begins with His people. It always begins with His people, His believers. And God always evaluates us through these two things. These are the several factors, but the two primary ones are fear, which is reverence, and service. Are we fearing God? Are we revering Him? Are we serving Him in the way that He wants us to serve Him? Deuteronomy 5.29 gives us a real good picture of the Lord's heart. In, in verse 28, the Lord's saying, it's, yes, it's really good that, that, you, that, all, that all these Jews are saying, yes, Moses, we'll, we'll obey what you say. We'll obey this law that you're giving us. And the Lord said, that's very commendable. But, in verse 29, the Lord says, oh, that they had such a heart in them. He doesn't want the lip service. He wants a heart that they would fear me. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments. You see how this goes together? That they would fear me and keep my commandments always, that it may be well with them and their sons forever. I mean, see the covenant? That they fear and then obey. Always. And it's well with them and their sons, generation after generation after generation. Because we're teaching that. We're modeling that. These are the laws. These are our respect for the Lord. We don't run and hide. We don't, try, we don't try to find clever new little twists to Satan's enticement. To get free from God. We want to serve Him. We want to stand in His courts. We want to be His bond slaves. And our children will pick this up. Our attitude toward the law. Do we have this kind of heart? And the reason why judgment has to start with us is because we know better. If we're his people, we know what he says. Unless we keep that Bible locked up, especially that Old Testament law, locked up and never look at it. But ignorance of the law is no excuse ever. 1 Peter 4, 7, New New Testament command. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, the answer to the question is, it's going to be really bad for them, but it's very bad for us first. It begins with us first. We feel, we feel the chastening of the Lord first. This is how God designed His justice. We're supposed to feel it first. 
when Kelly Shackelford lists all the, all the instances of religious persecution that are falling on us, we're feeling it first. When Christians are gunned down in Oregon for being Christians, we're feeling it. When they're knifed in other places, we're feeling it. When we're being targeted by our enemies, we're feeling it. Principle four, God gave his law to men. He gave his law as a gift. He gave it generously. He was very clear. He's not ambiguous about his will or his morality or his ethics. He gave his law to men, and without God's law, no person or nation can serve or honor Jesus Christ or defend the faith without the law. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5 through 9 is the passage you need to study on this. Fifth principle, people who reject God's law become enemies of God. I mean, you don't just say, okay, it's just my opinion now that it's okay to be relativistic now in the 21st century. You, you don't do that. You cannot do that. People who reject God's law for any purpose whatsoever become enemies of God. God acknowledges that you become an enemy of God, and he does go to war against you. Same for a nation. You are classified as an idolater. Why? Because it's not possible, and you need to understand this principle, it's not possible to rebel against the Lord without coming up with an entirely due rival law system. And you may, maybe you're singing Elsa's song in the shower, and you're rejecting God's law and God's will for your life. At the very same instant, you are replacing that with a different law system. You know, and what Satan said to Eve was, well, just make up your own. Your own law system, your own personalized, customized ethical system of law. You've made yourself God with a little g when you've done that. That's idolatry, isn't it? That's worshiping. That's having another God before you. Do you see how simple this is to understand? The state of affairs in America at the time of this message, I need to bring this to a close. Where do we stand today? What's the state of the union? Compared to other nations, America is relatively safe, prosperous, and socially stable. In comparison, okay? But we're not supposed to compare ourselves with other nations. How do we look when we compare ourselves to what's written in the law of God? I mean, you, you families who are here, who have these really well-behaved <laughs> well children, you know, I'm very proud to be in your company. Uh, your children are really kind of the cream, well, they are the cream of the crop in the United States. Okay, compared to other children, they look really good. Okay, compared to the standard of holiness and righteousness in the, in the law of God, how are your children? Okay. I mean, parents, we need to be asking ourselves these questions, don't we? And al also about our nation, too. Yes, we, um, we've all enjoyed relative freedom here. There's not been any um, lethal threats and dangers running around the hallways here. We have clean water. We have bathrooms. We have good food to eat. We're healthy. We're well fed. The environment here is comfortable. I mean, this is, this is really wonderful that we get to experience this kind of freedom right now. But compared to where the Lord wants us, where are we? America no longer has God's protection as a free nation. Okay, I, I'm summarizing the situation for you now. Based on the scripture, America no longer has God's protection as a free nation because Americans have voluntarily sold it out in exchange for the law system of rival sovereigns. 
We've replaced God's law with something different. America has dropped, and you need to understand this too, to number 20 on the Freedom Index. It's an index made up by a number of European and American uh, think tanks who study these things. They take a look at the rule of law, security and, and safety, movement, religion, association, assembly, expression, relationships, size of government, access to sound money, freedom to trade internationally, regulation of credit and business. America is now number 20 on the Freedom Index, 19 places down from communist Hong Kong. God cannot actively support, and I've written this out so I read it carefully, because I believe this is the accurate summation. God cannot ac accurately support freedom because the foundations for freedom have been surrendered to three primary domestic enemies, all of whom carry guilt as idolaters. Okay, we're surrendering our freedom and our foundations of freedom to these three enemies I'm going to mention to you. They're idolaters. Today God is actively allowing America to experience the fruit of moral surrender. And this is part of the judgment. Look, look at this verse in Jeremiah 6. Hear, O earth, verse 19. Behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. So he's saying, you're doing this to yourself. Why are you on the road to Egypt? Why are you going to Assyria? Why? You're doing this to yourself, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. Here's that verse again in Proverbs 28. This is the American verse for the 21st century. He who turns his ear away from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Even his prayer is an abomination. And so the lesson of sovereignty, before I give you this list, when enemies assault God's person by rejecting his law, they always put another sovereign religious law system in its place. This is having another God before you. This is breaking the first commandment. America currently suffers what historians term conditions of soft tyranny, which can escalate into hard tyranny and then terminal desolation. That's where we are. So now, here we go. I've got to wrap this up. The three enemies of freedom, the third most lethal threat to you and your country right now is Islam. This is number three. I'll work up to number one. Islam is a totalitarian political death cult. It's a religious law system of a false god. Okay, did you catch that? It's a religious law system. It has its alternative law system that's different from God's law system. It has a supremacist ideology that has not changed or reformed in 1200 years. During this time, more than 120 million people have been murdered in Islam's effort to conquer the world with Sharia law. That's their law system, their alternative. It's never changed. 120 million people have died. How many people realize the history of what's happened here? These are the mommies of uh, Islamic jihadis of tomorrow. Uh, young girls, they understand their theology, written on their hands here if you can see it. Down with USA, down with USA, down with USA. They want to give birth to many, many, many thousands of jihadis who will shed rivers of blood in this country because they have to do that. They've always known that they could, their system can systematically replace Christianity, as it has done in many countries over the last 1,200 years. America is Dar al-Harb to them. It means it's the land of war, which must be subdued, overthrown, cleansed, and made religiously Islamic. When Islam comes to a nation, the quiet Muslims who live there 
are executed as apostates unless they pick up their weapons and, and join in the jihad. You have to understand that. The quiet Muslims that we think we are safe, you know, the shopkeepers, the neighbors, etc., they will be considered apostates and immediately executed unless they join the jihad. Next thing that happens is Jew and Christian males are executed and then the women are seized as war booty and marked for punishment or slavery or then genocide. Bobby Jindal said just this week, he said, immigration without assimilation is not immigration, it's an invasion. And so those, those girls over there that you see, the young men who are coming into the United States, they're not coming to assimilate. They're coming to wage Dar al-Harb. Stealth jihad is the hijra. That means by migration. We'll, we'll, we'll wage a war of jihad by migration until it's time to take out the weapons. Currently, there are 2.6 million Muslims. The, that's the official number. The unofficial number is much higher. We don't even know what it is. The European number is low by a factor of four, at least. There are more millions in Europe right now than anybody has any idea how many there are. Those who attend mosques learn that Sharia law is the chief cultural goal of Islam, and, and Muslims are not subject to American law. And they understand that they will be here to quickly repeal it as soon as possible. All enemies of free Christian cultures have measurable goals. Now the ones for I Islam and for Muslims are these. The systematic replacement of all biblical, constitutional, federal, and state law with Sharia. The elimination of moderate Muslims. They cannot exist. The, an the annihilation of Jewish and Christian men. The enslavement of Christian women. They've been doing this for 1,200 years. And you know, the, the European Christian women with lighter colored hair, lighter skin, the green eyes, the lighter colored eyes, were very valuable in the slave trade. The erasure of all evidence of Christian civilization. Everything. Every headstone in any, any cemetery that, that looks Christian is gone. Every building, every library has to be gone. God has used the sword of Islam to ch chastise wayward and negligent Christian nations for 1,200 years. Could he do it here? Yeah, they're the third most dangerous threat. Here's the second. I'm going really fast here. The self-righteous, politically correct left, of whom you've heard many things this weekend. They're represented by the nationalized educational curriculum, the politically synchronized media, the self-accredited academia, the elites who run the colleges and the seminaries, the political leadership of the Democratic and Republican parties, the socialistic labor unions, and the regulatory bureaucracy with police powers, which is the civil government at the federal and state level. The rival system of law that they advance, okay, they're an enemy. They're, they're not trying to use their legitimate powers in the civil realm to establish justice in God's law. The rival system of law they advance is evolutionary positive law. That's what they call it. It changes with the moral degeneracy of the nation at the will of men who change the law daily. At the will of men. That's why we, now we have the rule of man in this country instead of the rule of law. We've lost the rule of law in this country. The left has always known how this religious law system can systematically replace Christianity. Just like the Muslims know it with their Sharia law, the left knows it with their system of law. It, the goal is to replace Christianity. 
and the biblical system of law. Now the benchmarks for this, remember every law system has its own goals, and these were laid out in the 1800s. Abolition of private property, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. 1800s, this was all laid down. These are the goals. Once we've achieved these things, we know we will have the, this positivist, anti-Christian law system in place. The abolition of all rights of inheritance. Confiscation of all the property of emigrants and rebels, people who try to get away. People who object. Centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of, means of a national bank, the Federal Reserve. Number six, centralization of the means of communication and transportation, TSA. State ownership of factories, businesses, and farms, General Motors. Creation of Department of Labor and a Department of Agriculture. Combina combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, more urbanized life with a planned economy. All planned by social engineers who know how to do this scientifically. Number 10, free education for all children in the public schools. Okay, Th these were their goals that they had laid out. How many of them have been met? All 10 have been met. All 10. So what's the status of freedom in the United States? The Christian structures of culture are, are being demolished and replaced by both enemies. They're both working to demolish the Christian foundations of culture. And all three of these enemies mentioned today are at war with the author of freedom. They're at war. They're literally at moral war. They're, we have to acknowledge that. And the Lord's at war back with them. All believe, not just these two, but all three of them, and I've, I haven't gotten to the, the worst one yet, all believe by faith that God is oppressive with his written moral restraints. And so do some of these little girls who are singing along with Elsa. It's repressive. I need to break, I need to see what I can do. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. All three of these enemies believe the same thing. God is oppressive with his written moral restraints. I don't like that. How can we break the bonds? All three enemies are scoffers at God's moral law. And that, that's, a, that's a biblical designation of attitude, scoffing at God's law. This is deadly individually and nationally. All three actively disbelieve that Jesus Christ has all authority. They, they don't just disbelieve it, they actively disbelieve it. All reject the providential blessings of God in history because they deny that he exists. Well, they know he does, Romans 1, but that they, they deny that he does. All are idolatrous and have placed themselves in the service of rival religious ethical systems. So, see, they're serving. That's why the Lord looks. What system of law are you serving with your life? These three enemies are serving rival religious ethical systems. You look, you look in Scripture, you look at, at all the times that God's people began to go astray into idolatry. They began serving a different master, a different religious system. And it's, it's spelled out there. All three are hostile to reality and cannot engage in, in moral conversation without abusing those in disagreement. All three believe they are morally virtuous. All three advance the same agenda, the replacement of biblical law with an alternative. Okay, I've, we've mentioned Islam. Number three, the neo-Marxist left with its global evolutionary positive law. And now number one, the number one threat to America's freedom, justice, and heritage is the evangelical Protestant Bible Belt Christians who believe that they are above the law. 
This is the greatest threat to America right now. And we have to admit this and confess it. It's represented by mainline churches, mega churches, community churches, denominational churches, Christian radio, Christian publishing, Christian record labels, Christian Bible schools and seminaries. Jeremiah 6.10 describes the attitude of the modern evangelical Bible Belt Protestant. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. How many times have you tried to get in a conversation with people about the law of God and how, how important it is or what role it might play and they just want to change the subject, get around it. It's a reproach to them. They're uncomfortable. How many churches are willing to preach sermons about the law of God and about sin? They have no delight in it. American Christians have angered God by casting the law behind their backs. Isaac read the verse in, in Nehemiah chapter 9. We were disobedient, rebelled against you, cast law behind your back. We, we acted corruptly toward you is the proper way that we should respond and confess this sin. Psalm 50, to the wicked God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and take my covenant in your mouth? Even And the, the, the suggestion here is, why, how can you even call yourselves believers? When you cast my words behind you, you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Proverbs 28, verse 9, he who turns his ear away from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. How, what does God think when he looks down at the evangelical Christians who think that they are above the law, that they don't need to study it, apply it, and keep it? This is really serious. Do you see how serious this is? If judgment begins with the house of God and we have turned our ear away from listening to the law and defending it and teaching it and practicing it, and discipling others with it. Not only are we least in the kingdom of heaven, we are in big trouble with the Lord. We started earlier in Jeremiah 18, if a nation does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice. It's not just here to study in a Bible, Bible class or Sunday school. We are to obey it. This is an authoritative word. How many Christians even have the hermeneutic to read the Word of God in the morning, looking for what to obey and then obeying it. Or are they just looking for a little therapeutic buzz, reading randomly whenever they feel like they need a little bit of connection with their therapist. I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. America has experienced blessing. We're in a transition period where we are not listening to the law of God. We have to, we have to admit that. American evangelical Christians have largely rejected the law of God and publicly endorse a positivistic natural law alternative. I mean, in the bookstores, Christian bookstores, you're seeing this. Hey, let's just try natural law. Isn't that good enough? Can't we just trust our scientific, secular, statist politicians to come up with something that'll be really good as an alternative? It plays into the hands of other enemies of God who exploit an exploding attitude of lawlessness that is not resisted or repudiated by God's people. Okay, do you see? We have to resist lawlessness. We don't want to be among the many in Matthew chapter 7 where the Lord says it's a judgment. Hey, yes, I know you call yourselves Christians, but depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. There will be many who say to the Lord that on that day. Now, look at this statement. I've got to read you this quote. A young boy who grew up in, in New York City was a, was a Muslim immigrant 
growing up in New York City, walked away from Islam recently, but he doesn't know where to go. He's not come to Christ, but he has accurately summarized the situation he sees in America. Quote, when men reduce their virtues to the approximate, then evil acquires the force of an absolute. He was seeing you know, people calling themselves Christians in New York, a Christian company. They were reducing their virtues to something sort of approximate. I'm just, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. I don't like, want to make a fuss. You know, I don't... We just go along to get along. That's what the Christians were, how they were living. Then evil acquires the force of an absolute. When loyalty to an unyielding purpose is dropped by the virtuous, the Christians in New York used to be absolutely loyal to the law of God at the time of the colonies. Then he says it's picked up by scoundrels. If that loyalty is dropped by the virtuous people, it's picked up by scoundrels and you get the indecent spectacle of a cringing, bargaining, traitorous good and a self-righteously uncompromising evil. That's what he was seeing in his neighborhood. The Muslims were rising up, intimidating the Christians, saying, you guys don't stand for anything. We are the ones who stand for something. We have a plan for this country. We have a law system. And you guys are, look at this, these words, cringing, bargaining, traitorous. That's how Christians are acting in this country. Kelly Shackelford has tried to find Christian adults who will stand up for what's right when they have the perfect case to take to court. Many of them saying back to him, well, um, no, thanks. We just, we, we just don't want to make a fuss. Cringing, bargaining, traitorous against a self-righteously uncompromising evil. Islam is not, un, is not compromising. The left is not compromising. The Christians are compromising. We're acting corruptly. Deuteronomy 28, verse 63. The word of God Almighty. It shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good. He's speaking to his people. So the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you. Have you ever heard this preached in a church? The Lord rejoices to set up a nation and plant them to be good and to give them the law so that they can flourish upwardly. And if we depart from it, what will happen? He will rejoice over us to destroy us. America, America is now arrogantly unresponsive to more than 50 monetary judgments, which we find in Leviticus 26 and Matthew 28, in, in, in Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. You can count over 50 judgments that we are currently experiencing that show you what the Lord thinks about us. He's trying to get our attention. We're unresponsive. We're not contrite. And now here's the great historic lesson of American freedom. I'm closing with this. America once did experience true biblical freedom because the culture was not ashamed of the law of God contained in the gospel. Statutes, testimonies, judgments, precepts, and commands of scripture. That's what the gospel represented to them. That's what it represented in the first century when the Lord Jesus Christ used that word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word was used in the Roman Empire for the gospel of Caesar Augustus. All his statutes, testimonies, judgments, precepts. And so everyone knew in the first century the gospel of Jesus Christ includes all of this law of God. In the 17th and 18th centuries, Americans had the courage to say this. No enactment of man, read this with me in your minds. No enactment of man can be considered law unless it conforms to the law of God. This is how we used to talk in America. This is a picture of courage. 
This is how the leaders and the families and the daddies talk to one another. And the colonists who were setting up their system of, of government. This is a quote from William Blackstone. The Englishman in England, the Englishman in America, talked this way. This is what we understood. We were not ashamed of the gospel. Here's another quote. No human laws are of any validity of contrary to God's revealed law. We were not ashamed to go to Scripture for our laws. This is what we have to get back to. The, the uh, agreement for the colony of Connecticut reads like this. We all agree that the Scriptures hold forth a perfect rule for the direction and government of all men. And it's, it's for everything in the colony, as well as in families, com commonwealth, as in matters of the church, so likewise in all public officers, which concern civil order, the choice of magistrates and officers, making and repealing laws, dividing allotments of inheritance, and all things of like nature. We will, they said, all of us, be ordered by the rules which the Scripture holds forth. This is the courage we need to get back to. I, I hope I'm making this clear to you. We've departed from this attitude. We're incredibly ashamed to say, we're not, we will go to Scripture to find out if it's lawful, who has jurisdiction, what the law should say, what laws should be repealed. Proverbs 28, verse 4, this is the solution I want to leave you with today. They that forsake the law praise the wicked. Any of, any of us in the evangelical Bible Belt who think we're above the law, we don't need to be concerned with it, and we have our own excuses why we don't. We praise the wicked, and they, and they grow, and they become self-righteously wicked. And they don't compromise. But such as keep the law, contend with them. That is our solution. Such as keep the law, contend. How do we fight enemy number three? By contending with them, by keeping the law. How do we fight the left? By contending with them, by keeping the law. How do we fight with apostate Christians? By contending with them. Uh, you know, these, the, some of the families who have been here, who've been through horrible ordeals of religious persecution, tell this story. We were abandoned by Christians who left them in the lurch because they wouldn't stand by them. Every single one of them can tell you about that. Wimpy, weak, cowardly Christians who wouldn't stand by them. This is our solution right here. They that forsake the law praise the wicked. We, can, we, we cannot continue praising the wicked, having sympathy for the wicked. But such as keep the law, contend with them. This means we need to study it. And you know, it's not that hard for your children even your young children, to be reading the law of God. One of the young men in our church has been doing a study through the book of Deuteronomy with the other young people in the church, and they're beginning to think like those who want to love mercy, walk with the Lord, and do justice. And so they're asking themselves questions, is this lawful? War in Iraq, war in Afghanistan. What about this policy? This presidential candidate, is this, is this lawful? What are his policies? How does he conform himself to the law of God? What are the jurisdictions? in Scripture, and they're beginning to think this way, and this is how Americans thought a mere 220 years ago or so. We can begin to discipline ourselves to think this way again and act this way again. I am so encouraged that we can do We have the Scripture in our own language. We do not have any right to back away from these commands and teach others to do so. I want you all to be great in the kingdom of heaven. 
I want you to serve your, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as his ambassador, announcing his will to your generation. That's what I want to see you doing. Boldly and confidently, just by simply going straight to Scripture. And it's so clear. I mean, there's some tricky questions in there, but talk to one another about them. It's so much fun to study, and, and as the young people in our church are beginning to discover that, it's breathing life into them, that there are answers and they can find them in Scripture. And if they have the support of the adults, they say, yeah, you're on the right track, you're on the right track, yes. Well, yes, we need to confess. Yes, we had grown-ups have, have left you a mess in our country. But how do we fix it? We confess our sins and we repent and we come back. Such as keep the law, contend with them. We have to resist the wicked. We must resist the wicked. And the Lord can give us grace to do that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, today we do hear your command in the word, I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes. Keep my judgments and do them. Lord, we want to think like you. We know that you are not like us. We know that you're high and lifted up. We want to think like you and we want to follow you. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace, encouragement. I pray that you would give us great optimism to know and remember that any time a nation did turn, you supported them so much and blessed them. You opened the word of God to them and became a light to their path. You put down their enemies. Your justice was not slow. It was swift and speedy, acting on their behalf. And Lord, we want to experience that in our, our time. Thank you for letting us be alive in this time. Thank you for letting us be able to see the power of God when we do kneel before you and bow the knee to your authority and submit to you. Our Father in heaven, we, we want to see your Son, Jesus Christ, and his authority so exalted that the glory of the Lord really does cover the earth, that nations can prosper because they are given the law of God and learn how to obey it themselves and be blessed by it. And the death and, and destruction and tyranny are replaced by peace and order that you've designed, as well as you designed the entire solar system and universe. Lord, God, thank you for giving us this opportunity to live and to fear you and re revere you and serve you. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray for these families, that you would encourage them to lead their families in very specific repentance of sin, that you would lead them in having and taking delight in the law of God. And Lord, may we be like David, who, who's, who studied it day and night, who took great delight in it, and who became a champion of it for your kingdom. So Father, we commit the future to you now. We thank you for this time together. We commit these things to you in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you all very much for being here. You've been listening to the Freedom 2015 audio series sponsored by Generations. For more resources for defending the Christian faith, including family discipleship resources and an online daily radio broadcast, please visit generations.org.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.